it is a very broad problem space. Clinical trials and you know, you know, drug development as a whole from end to end is an extremely deep and also wide problem. So the first thing was drinking off of Faro's. Um, you guys are in the medical industry. There's so many acronyms. There's like, you know, just a litany of acronyms that you have to be aware of that people use on like in a day-to-day -day basis. Honestly, I'm blanking right now with, with a good acronym. Ideally, I'd be rattling up some, some, some like really gnarly acronyms about all things clinical trials. But yeah, it's all about drinking off Faro's. And the first thing is to be a listener and to be a learner, right? I would, I would estimate, and this is a, a spiel I give to everyone in file. It took me about nine months to feel comfortable that with the fact that I'm in the clinical trials world. That's how much information was being thrown at you and trying to, to trying to get into this, this, this world. Miguel. What do Teletubbies and babies remind you of? What do Teletubbies and babies remind me of? Uh, it reminds me of a very core foundational memory in my life. Um, I was four years old, give or take, you know, a few months. Um, and I, my mom couldn't find like somebody to watch me for the day. So she decided to do a take your kid at work day. Um, and basically I found myself in an operating room of a, you know, basically an OR delivery. Um, as one does, as one does, as one does just really casually just out there. Um, and I was, I was in an observational room uh, and there was a window into the goings on of, you know, of the event. And, uh, I remember very distinctly, there was a television set, one of those really old, you know, old now, like super TVs, like those huge and chonky right above the, um, the, which we'll call it the window, uh, it was like Teletubbies while a baby was being delivered out of a woman. Uh, and I remember very distinctly the, the Teletubbies baby, the son, you know, the son character was, was flashing out while the child was being held in my mother's hands as she successfully delivered a child into this world. And, and that is what Teletubbies and babies remind me of. We all have foundational memories. Welcome back to How It's Met, the podcast where we chat with people shaping the future of healthcare and health tech. Uh, here we interview founders, investors, VC, and your occasional, and this time around, VP engineering of an amazing startup in the clinical trials world, so that you too can get a better understanding of the stories, secrets, and skills of those shaping the world uh, of healthcare around you. We do this so that you can better understand how you can shape the lives of those around you for the better. This time around, we've got Miguel Testa, VP Engineering of Vial, a global full-service CRO based in San Fran that aims to reimagine clinical trials to deliver dramatically faster, more efficient trials for biotech sponsors. Miguel, how are you doing? Doing fantastic. How about you guys? I'm doing all right. Yeah, let's see how this goes. So tell us about your, your journey into engineering. How did that start? So it started when, well, first and foremost, I went into uh, UBC. I did this thing called pre-med engineering because, again, owing to my experience, foundational memory, watching an OR with Teletubbies in the background, um, I've always wanted to be a doctor. I've always wanted to be a physician. That's been a dream of mine since I was young. But um, as I was going through my education at UBC, one thing I realized is that the pathway to medicine, the pathway to becoming a physician here in Canada, 
um, was not something that I particularly resonated with. And furthermore, the realities of being a physician here in Canada was not necessarily something that was aligned with my personal values, with how I wanted to approach medicine. And that led me to look at what else am I good at? And I kind of, you know, gravitated naturally towards computers and programming. You know, I've been, I've been monkeying around on, you know, computers and software since I was young and trying to get like bootleg games to work on my PC. Um, and that kind of germinated into this whole thing about, you know, programming in university and, and, and being pretty decent at it. And, and, and I just chased that down and found myself where I am. How do you, how do you end up joining the, the organization? I ended up joining the organization because the CEO, Simon, ended up reaching out to me um, and basically painting me the story of this, you know, this biotech that he's shaping. I think it's an important piece of context that, um, again, I did biomedical engineering. Um, I came out of a program not expecting at all to jump into anything medical related or pharma related or anything that has to do with my degree. Um, but yeah, the opportunity arise when, when Simon messaged me and said, Hey, you know, I'm building this biotech. Do you want in? Um, it was almost like serendipity that I got the opportunity to kind of jump back into this thing that I've been interested in all my life and in the skills and capacity that I kind of built towards that moment. Out of curiosity, then what made you so interested in the entrepreneurial path? So. What made me interested in the entrepreneurial side of things? Um, so again, like the initial interest came out of necessity. I needed to forge my own path to be able to pursue what I found interesting at the time. Um, but I think what's the most interesting about the entrepreneurial path is, is that you're in full control of, I guess, your own destiny. I know it's, it sounds very cliche, but there's a lot to be said about limiting the factors that kind of shape your decisions on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think as an entrepreneur, you know, as, as a business owner, um, it's almost the penultimate, you know, manifestation of being in control of your own, you know, your own career. With the journey into Vile, uh, you, you shared with me some really interesting, I guess, reading about the company in itself. Long story short, Vile does super interesting uh things with regard to integrating the uh different technology uh technologies that are necessary to abide by the regulations uh of clinical trials in i guess north america overall mm -hmm. um but miguel do you mind i guess paraphrasing that in a means or in a way that a five-year-old that a five-year-old could understand yeah. So clinical trials are really expensive in large part because people still use pen and paper all over the world in order to record data and other very inefficient things. Uh, when people do inefficient things, again, like use pen and paper, fly out in order to inspect clinical trial sites, uh, basically not check their data using, you know, programmatic methods or like using computers, you end up having to redo a lot of work. You're, you end up having to wait for a lot of people to, you know, respond to emails or kind of just even land and, and inspect a clinical trial. So all of these inefficiencies, all of these things that, you know, that, that slow things down, if you get rid of it, if you make it more efficient by using computers and using modern tools and using the internet and the cloud in order to store your data, to manage your data more effectively, what you actually end up with is radically cheaper and more efficient trials. So again, to paraphrase that really, really simply, 
you know, the way clinical trials broken because people do very, very slow things. So what kind of engineering would you classify this as? Because it doesn't really fall into my numbskull and like understanding of what specialty of, as, uh, of engineering uh, there are. Is this like systems engineering or how would you best describe it? So it's really all of the above, right? So um, obviously like being able to architect a system and how it fits with, you know, things like EHR systems, like existing electronic health record systems. Um, how does it fit in with the regulations um, that, you know, the FDA and other kind of regulatory bodies enforce when it comes to security, privacy, and, you know, integrity of data. That's, that's huge. How do you interface with, with, um, clinical trial sites with how they, their staff are trained? How do you onboard them? How do you like, um, keep your service alive? Like a traditional software uh, problem. So there's a lot of systems in play. There's a lot of software in play because clearly you're building software. Um, there's data engineering there because you're having to map out the, you know, the data flow of, uh, of it all. And there's also a little bit of biomedical engineering because a big part of your job, or at least our job here at Vile, is to make sure that medical forms are properly configured. So there's a lot of like instinct there where it's like, okay, like, you know, this is measuring, this is measuring blood pressure. Like, should it have a value of like 10,000? No, it shouldn't, right? Like there's things like that, that have to be relied on with an instinct of somebody who's aware of medicine. Tell me about it. It's painful. <laughs> All right. Can you tell us a bit about how you approached the problem when you first joined Vile? So approaching the problem when I first joined Vile, first off, is it is a very broad problem space. Clinical trials and, you know, you know, drug development as a whole from end to end is an extremely deep and also wide problem. So the first thing was drinking off a fire hose. Um, you guys are in the medical industry. There's so many acronyms. There's like, you know, just a litany of acronyms that you have to be aware of that people use on like in a day-to-day -day basis. I'm, honestly, I'm blanking right now with, with a good acronym. Ideally, I'd be rattling up some, some, some like really gnarly acronyms about all things clinical trials. But yeah, it's all about rigging off fire hose. And the first thing is to be a listener and to be a learner, right? I would, I would estimate, and this is a, a spiel I give to everyone in file. It took me about nine months to feel comfortable that with the fact that I'm in the clinical trials world. That's how much information was being thrown at you and trying to, to trying to get into this, this, this world. Um, but yeah, basically again, it's, 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 it's all about being a listener first, being a learner first, um, and making sure that you know what you're walking into as you start making these design decisions and these engineering decisions. Uh, and as I, as I started kind of like seeing and mapping out the problem space a little bit more intimately, I feel as I became more comfortable with um, with the whole world of, of clinical trials, I started approaching it from, and this would be actually really interesting because the best way to make good clinical trial software fast is almost to be unempathetic. It's almost actually not think about how users are using your software, but rather what the, where the data is going to go. So let me explain more clearly. The end users of the software are clinical trial sites. But the end beneficiaries are actually the patients, right? So between those two, right? Between the needs and the security of the patient and, and, and the ease of use of, of your clinical trial sites, which do you prioritize, right? And this is where it becomes unique from a software and product development perspective, right? Um, I'll give you a very tangible example, right? 
Uh, we, one of, one of our big security features, you know, for, for HIPAA and GDPR is you need to log people out after about 15 minutes of use. Um, a lot of clinical trial sites obviously find that very annoying and all, cause then they have to do like two factor authentication. They'd be like, Oh, why'd I have to log in over and over again? But the thing is, you know, like you have to make sure that the, the patient's data is secure. Um, because obviously it's their health, it's their privacy at stake. There's a lot on the line there. So, you know, who do you prioritize? Do you make it easier for your end user who is the clinical trial site to use, or do you secure the, the patient's data? And when you start applying that kind of framework of like, okay, there's two, there's many layers of, of stakeholders here, right? Um, you kind of like remove yourself from the situation of, of developing the product and think more holistically about like, okay, how does the data flow? How do we make sure the data get from point A to point B securely, efficiently, and without any hassle? Uh, obviously we'll want to make the system very easy to use for our, you know, end users, which again, the clinical trial sites. But ultimately, again, the patient does take precedence. The security of the data does take precedence and moving it from point A to point, point B is the whole point. Um, as a last point, the, the last interesting tidbit here is that clinical trials, um, and, you know, the products and software routed is literally just moving data from point A to point B. It's literally just moving the data from your patient's, you know, statements and their writing into a report. That's it. It's actually a fundamentally simple problem with not so simple obstacles. I'm a bit curious about the obstacles. So the obstacles of um, making good clinical trial software, again, first and foremost is your regulations. So regulatory Regulatory bodies obviously clamp down and make sure that your data is secure and that your, that, that, that your work is well validated. There's a lot of red tape. Um, which again, it's for a good reason. You don't want anyone to just be able to store patient data in something that's completely unsecured. Um, the other challenge is that it's hard to get feedback. It's hard to get user feedback. Um, when you're building software for the clinical trial stage, because the sales cycle, the kind of like the adoption is like very, very slow. It's not like you built something and all of a sudden it's in the hand of, of users. Obviously, we did some workarounds and hacks around getting user feedback, uh, meaning like dry run testing it, um, a lot of experimentation, just a lot of people just doing, you know, like, like using our products in a, in a dry run fashion. But nothing meets, nothing beats when rubber meets the road, right? Like nothing beats the real thing. And again, in, in the biomedical industry, in the bi biopharma industry, the biotech industry, that's quite a long cycle to get there. So that is a very, very big challenge that, um, I think is, is starting to become over, like it, it's being overcome now by, by a few different methods. You're working as someone who's leading a team of so many different specialists in their own subspecific fields, biologists, uh, biochemists, chemists. How do you manage to keep on top of managing such a diverse team that is such subspecific knowledge that you can't really like learn the entirety of? Yeah. Definitely. So it's really, really hard at first. I think the first time you make a hire or you're, you're in charge of leading somebody who's outside of your realm of expertise, uh, there's almost this stage fright. There's almost this like the imposter syndrome all of a sudden flares up in, in, in the strongest ways. Uh, and that's for a good reason. Again, you like, you, like it's, it's another expert, somebody who's clearly smarter than you and much better than you at what aspect of your industry or your job. Uh, so there's a lot of players. So I think the first thing to consider is like, oh, really throw away your ego. Like 
check your ego at the door. Actually, don't even just check your ego at the door. Make sure you don't even bring it with you on the way to work because, um, it's a, it, you turn into a noob every time you speak to this person and they're reporting to you. You just don't like a lot of times they'd be speaking and you don't know. And there's a strong temptation to just pretend it's like, yeah, I totally get that. Right. Like, oh, you know, like, I, oh, that, that thing, you know, I, I absolutely know what you're talking about. Um, but no, you can't do that. Well, you how many times to... have you played it cool though, te- uh, Miguel? How many, how many times have you actually played it cool? Realistically, actually, I'm going to be 100% real here. I probably played cool about 30% of the time. 30% of the time, I would pretend that I actually know what I was talking about. But over, over the, the, the year or so that I've been in charge of like cross-disciplinary teams, that yeah. number has slowly started down and down and down. And the way to actually, this is, this is a tip to all of you who are listening, um, who may find yourself in a position where you don't know what they're talking about and, um, and, and, and you don't understand and you're afraid of looking stupid, but you also need to understand. Um, the magic question to, uh, to say, or the magic prompt to say is, can you summarize that in a couple of sentences? Ask them to like re-summarize everything that they said in a couple of sentences. And usually, if you did your hiring well, if you were surrounded by really, really good people, they would usually explain it in very basic terms that you would understand, or at least you would get the context clues of what they're trying to say. Because a lot of times, then this is, again, goes for any expert. It could be software, it could be mechanical, it could be biomedical, it could be in data engineering, it could be in biostatistics or even chemistry. And like every single technical expert loves talking or not about technical details. It's all about, you know, the nuances of their work, what makes your work very uniquely technical and special, but quite often the business impact, the impact of it to the project or to the business as a whole could be summarized in a couple of sentences. So again, if you don't understand what your technician is telling you, tell them, hey, explain this to me in a couple of sentences and that will work well. So that's one. Um, next important thing when managing people who are outside of your realm of expertise, beyond obviously checking your ego at the door, being willing to learn, getting them to, you know, explain things very well to you or very briefly to you is to be really, really good at diagramming. Diagramming is is probably the most essential skill of somebody who's managing a different set of, you know, expertise. And, and let me tell you why. The reason why is because every single process, every single function that any technical person does can be boiled down to really a flowchart. You can break every single technical process, every single technical project down to a flowchart. And if you can like draw it out, in like a diagram of like, this is what happens and this is what happens and this is what happens and this is what happens. If you're able to map everything out in a very clean diagram or full chart, what you're then able to do is really narrow down what you don't understand in somebody's work. Like for example, if my chemist, you know, does a cool full chart on drug discovery and you know, how, how he uses the software to basically figure out, you know, drugs, it, it's a sequence of steps. Okay. Like we get the data. We clean the data, we format the data, then we do this like really crazy simulation, and then we do another filtering of data. And, and this crazy simulation, I don't know what the hell it does. So what I then do is I highlight that thing on the flowchart, say, okay, this one block, this is the only thing I care about. Tell me about this. Elaborate about this. Because a lot of the, the things you can conceptually grasp. So again, being able to visualize things, being able to decompose things into a step-by-step linear, ideally linear flowchart. Um, goes a long way towards understanding things that you just generally wouldn't have any idea with. 
And I think when those two, those are the 80, 20, like just be, be willing to listen, be willing to learn and get good at visualizing processes. Um, those two things get you a long way towards managing anyone. Like right now, I wouldn't be surprised if you guys could manage a literal nuclear scientist or like a rocket scientist at the same time, if you're just able to follow those two steps. Not that you would because, you know, medicine, but I digress. That'd be terrifying. But I mean, either way, you, you backtracking a little, you, you, you dropped a little bit of a segue there when you talked about drug discovery. Vile has done pretty amazing work when it comes to simplifying the, the conduct of clinical trials. Again, by making sure that data is transferred efficiently from one site to another, because that's the whole complication about clinical trials. The next step that Vile took was in essentially drug discovery with its spinoff, Battery Bio. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about the lowdown of the drug development scene that justifies this next big move from Vile? Yeah, so to put quite simply, um, after we started optimizing clinical trials or after we've seen the, the wonderful, the wonderful effects of what happens when your clinical trials are much, much more efficient. The next thing is, you know, what, what do you do with, um, like where do you go from there? Right. Again, one of the things I didn't bring up is our vision. Uh, our vision as a startup was to really cure all human disease. Um, and, you know, by optimizing clinical trials, we basically eliminated the biggest model lab in the whole drug development process, right? Um, but we're still not accelerating. Like, we've accelerated things by a lot, but it's not enough. It's not enough for us. I think we thought that we could do much better things if we owned the whole process, right? Because imagine, you've optimized the biggest model lab. What if you yourself break those efficiencies upstream into the process, meaning earlier on in the process, when you're just discovering the drug, when you're just finding out your, your drug candidate, um, what if you own that part of the process too? And you could just control the pipe from A to B, right? Or A to Z. Um, and I think that's why we got inspired. Like, Hey, let's make our own drug. Let's formulate our own, our own things. Let's figure out our own ways to discover drugs and put them through our own clinical trial process. Um, not only is it a lot more efficient, we, we could hypothetically really like walk through a whole bunch of different drugs. Um, really, really quickly. And also, um, speaking from a less than altruistic, um, statement, also make a lot of capital and make a lot of money uh, doing that. So that was a huge driver for us looking into drug discovery. Mm -hmm. So I think the flip side of this question then becomes why have the incumbents? So for example, your Novo Nordisk, um, and, uh, like, uh, uh, other like huge pharmaceutical giants not invested in more software to ensure that their uh that their like tech stack is able to you know integrate all of the end-to-end preclinical clinical and post-marketing work uh in the way that uh vial is trying to do yeah when you're dealing with something as fundamental as pharmaceuticals and medicine there is always this instinct of if it's not broken, why fix it, right? Don't fix what isn't broken, which again, in a lot of cases is, is ideal because you don't want your, you don't want people to be like messing around the fundamental process that have to do with people's health. There's an inherent risk is another way to phrase this. There is a risk to doing things new and that risk, the industry is, is again, very averse to that. 
Um, and it really takes somebody new, somebody who's, you know, much, much early, like much, much earlier on in the, in the life cycle of a company to be able to stomach that risk, to be able to say, okay, you know what? We're going to do our own thing. We're, we're going to say, you know, we're going to revamp everything. We're going to use all the latest software, even though they're not 100%, you know, field cluster, not 100%, um, as tried and true as the old methods, we're going to use them and we're going to win. Um, again, that stomach for us, that appetite for innovation, uh, I think is what stops most incumbents from, from treading down this path. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of How It's Med. If you liked what you heard, the best way to support us is to go to your podcast platform, be it Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever you like, and to give us a rating and a recommendation or a comment so that others can best find us. If you can't do that, then we'd really appreciate it if you could share your favorite episode with those that you care about and who you think would find our work interesting. Till next time.